here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of the guitarist and songwriter Alan Crockford, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry, plus also his life in music, one-time member of The Prisoners, also the James Taylor Quartet, and has been in about a million other bands since then. I know, I'm slightly exaggerated, but has been in a lot of bands. So um, you will find out much, much more about his life in music and also all the different combos he's been in. So after several minutes of interest and but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Alan, it's over to you. Well, no, I mean, I was into, I suppose I was pretty much into glam and all that sort of stuff when I was really young, you know, the same people that you've just mentioned, I suppose, but it was um, it was more obvious than that. I just got into the Beatles, you know, um, probably the same as everyone else might. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just a little bit older than you, so... It was, you know, Beatles films at Christmas. And then um, the music was ubiquitous, even though it split up for, you know, probably th- three, four years by the time I come, became properly aware of them as a, as a, you know, as a band. Yes. Equivalent of, you know, T-Rex or Slade, just from a slightly different era. But I definitely remember hearing all their stuff on the radio as well as all, you know, a lot of other stuff of that era just worms its way into your consciousness and you don't know quite why but you know the radio must have been on radio one or whatever the equivalent was you know in the kitchen in the 60s as i was growing up so you know yes lots of stuff well, I think my parents were quite into Radio 2, really, so I seem to remember. I think there was more Radio 2 during the day and then kind of Radio 1 possibly in the evening. But also there was that Sunday evening, the countdown, the top 40 countdown on a Sunday evening, which was quite an experience of listening to where your favourite song was because it would ch- it would change so slowly. It wasn't like it would just jump in and then jump out again. It was, it was this very slow-moving experience, wasn't it? Yeah. Actually, uh, this microphone is continually going down let's pause it i'm going to set up my interface i'm just going to get a microphone and then we'll get a back Carry right. on. there you go yes oh yes that's right so you were talking about the beatles which was quite interesting because i was saying that radio 2 was a big part of our lives i think being in the kitchen with my mum you know she liked radio 2 so we'd i think that's why i grew up to love all the ba- you know people like the carpenters and burt backrack and people like that because there was a sort of uh that kind of soundtrack wasn't it but it was interesting you mentioned the Beatles because they'd only split up a few years when you probably were getting into them in 73 74 but it did seem like a completely different chapter in music and I know when I spoke to Nick Kent who was the NME writer he said that when he first started writing the journalists there were all waiting for the Beatles to reform and he was thinking no something else is happening on the music front so we can forget that one, guys. So it's it's interesting how quickly people become a bit sort of old old fuddy duddies, even probably at the age of you know twenty five. So um, uh, yes. Well, I mean, it's I think as you get older, the, the years go past so quickly. Um, you know, so it's say in nineteen seventy four, seventy five, when I was getting into listening to music properly. Five years between that and the Beatles actually splitting up. If you think what five years means now. Nothing's nothing changes in five years, you know. It's uh, 
it's completely different. Yes. It's uh, so, you know, my, you know, the Galileo 7 have been going since 2010, which is like, it's 14 years, uh, you know, and 14 years between 1975 or whatever it was and is going back to 1961. And, you know, to think how much music changed between those two years and it's uh, things of... I can't tell whether they've slowed down or speeded up. That's the, it's a strange thing. And it may be an age thing, or it may be just the way that's the way our sort of music, pop music, rock music or whatever has, has kind of been stretched or, you know, everything happened, everything good happened in a very short space and time. And we've been just right, just kind of catching up ever since. I don't yes. know. It's a, it's a strange thing. It's the, the distance between now and never mind the bollocks is as long as never mind the bollocks and you know 30s music or something yes well this is true i know that's that's something that i've often thought about because when we started probably collecting music and being a bit more serious we didn't have to go back that far to sort of get to the back to the where it almost started i mean not exactly and i'm sure some purists would argue it but you only had to go back to about 63 62 to begin you know to pick up the sort of the story of pop and rock really with you know the beatles and the yeah. stones and people like that so it wasn't um yes it was all relatively new and i know there was the blues and jazz and you know little richard and elvis presley but it, it's kind of just um a, a short period of time that we had to sort of like just delve back but there was as you mentioned there was so much that had happened in that short period of time sort of um it was it was like some some sort of weird i don't know condenser really of, of sort of what happened in creative in creativity really during that 60s mm. period and 70s especially so there you go there you go yes so were you did you have a, any kind of musical influences during that period of your growing up were your parents into music or you had an older brother um no i'm the older brother um i've got a younger sister um no but me my my dad's mum uh, played the piano in pubs. Um, I never, I never in pubs in London. Um, uh, but they eventually ended up in the, on the Isle of Sheppey and played in pubs there. But that musical talent didn't go down to my dad. Um, but he was very, you know, my parents were always very keen to help me. Um, and they were quite keen on me learning how to play the piano or, or as the organ, I actually learned play, how to play the organ in that sort of period in the seventies when everyone had a Hammond, a home organ, you know, with a yes. rhythm with a rhythm box. So I had like six or seven years of Hammond organ lessons when I was in my, you know, uh, early teens, right up until you know seventeen or eighteen. Um, so, which I continued. Didn't really like it, but we did have a Hammond in the house. Um, until I just got into punk rock and decided it was the guitar for me and then eventually bass. But, yes. you know, I was actually a keyboard player to start with and that's sort of where, you know, when the prisoners were going, just getting going and um, when James joined, he didn't have a Hammond, didn't really know what a Hammond was really. He just had a little, you know, one of those Casio keyboards and I had a Hammond in the house, so we gradually worked out that the Hammond did actually sound good in the right hands, not just playing I do like to be beside the seaside and stuff like that, which is what was uh, 
I was being taught how to play <laughs> to, yes. to, to entertain the grandparents. Nice. Well, the, it's always good to keep the old folk happy. So when you got to 16, was what sort of period was this? Was this kind of 76, 77 time? Uh, no, that would have been 79, 79, 80. So just before that, where, what was your first gig that you'd gone to? Uh, the first actual gig, proper gig <laughs> I went to was Mud. I went to see Mud a couple of times in their Tiger Feet pomp yes at the central hall in chatham uh then i saw the glitter band and i saw cozy powell you know with my parents um so i was into music and you know if a you know if a, a kind of a band or an artist that i'd heard of actually swang through the medway towns or t- towns nearby you know we got we did actually go and see them um, yes. but the first uh band i actually really was into and saw was the jam and that right. was in uh, 1977 just after this is the modern world had come out yes that was their first album wasn't it really yeah. yes no, well, it, was a, it was their second album it was i see i'm such yeah. a <laughs> i like to keep my facts going right i was just watching a documentary about the jam i should have got that right shouldn't i it was a a bad one so did did was punk rock the kind of where where it all reset and everything changed yeah, um, well, I I was in I was I went from the Beatles to Pink Floyd to Led Zeppelin to uh, you know all the all the mainstream big rock bands, uh, but then punk rock came along and I was I thought if you'd like punk rock you've got to get rid of all that old fart stuff you know so at the age of fifteen I was selling all my Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd albums. To, yeah, to, because I, I, it was a kind of a year zero thing. Even when you're 14 or 15, that's how much that's how important it was. I mean, as it turned out, I bought them all back again. I sold most of my that sort of my rock records to Nitin Solney, oh. uh, who was went to school with us. He was in the same year as us and actually played. Uh, you know, came to a couple of our rehearsals when we were still learning how to play. Uh, he ended up with all my rock records, and then I regretted it. You know, within two years i'd like to buy them all. i didn't buy them back from him i, I was like to go to second hand shops and you know buy crappy scratch copies so there's a lesson learned you know there's no such thing as good as you know music that's prohibited it's just whatever you like yes well that's that's yeah well i had an older brother who was seven years old and he was into all the prog rock stuff so i used to sneak into his room and and sort of play these kind of rather bizarre and exotic sounding records you know the double albums and you know gatefold sleeves roger dean kind of covers i loved all that stuff i loved it i mean i and i i'll still love it now in some way i'm more likely to play those sort of records than the punk rock stuff i was got into i mean i loved Mm. it, it and it made me you know, it made us get into playing music properly with a band. But yes, did you did so? Was Rick Wakeman? Did he sort of come into your consciousness in <laughs> no, that, not that really. period? Not so, not it, not so much. Yes, I didn't know much about Yes or Genesis. It was it was Pink Floyd, Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, right, uh, and the Beatles and a, a, a few others. Um, yes. You know the old the dinosaurs basically the dinosaurs. So yeah. with Deep with Deep Purple, obviously Machine Head, their classic album with Smoke on the Water, had an amazing um, keyboard player, didn't they? John Lord, who had a fantastic sound. Was that quite an influence to you during that period as well? 
Oh yeah, definitely. When the prisoners, um, when we started, because we, we started as a three piece, um, just me, Johnny and Graham being a bit sort of playing sort of quite jam sort of stuff, really punk rocky jam stuff. And then eventually worked out that we needed another instrument and it was James who was another, you know, was in the same year as me and Johnny and Graham happened to be a, um, play, have piano lessons. So he joined and he was Johnny's best mate. And we gradually, we worked out that Hammond was what we needed, you know, cause he went from Casio to Vox Continental to, uh, Jennings strange sort of another type of vox and then eventually ended up with a hammond that we bought from a little old lady in gillingham and we had yes. it split and but the the sound that we wanted was that sort of ian mcclagan small faces sound and john lord a bit later as we got sort of a little bit rockier and heavier but so yeah there's a lot of rock hammond players that were around in the 60s and 70s that was you know that sound was in our heads and James found it, you know, yeah. and went there's from a, there. There's, there's a classic, there's a, there's a series that they seem to play on Sky Arts, which is now free, but they, the classic albums and there's a whole, there's loads of them and they're worth yeah. watching even if you don't like the band, but there was a great one on Deep Purple, Machine Head, with lots of John Lord sort of doing his little bits, kind of saying where, where he got the influence from and where it sort of how it originated and how songs came together and stuff. It's a, yeah. it's a fascinating yeah, yeah. documentary, which is... Um, I've seen, yeah, I've seen quite a lot of them. Yeah. Yes, it's all good. So when we got to 79, you leave school. This is when, you know, Thatcher gets in. 82. We, well, 82 I, you left school. Yeah, we all did um, A-levels. Ah, right. So you, you stayed on for sixth form. Yeah. And when and the prisoner started, though, in 1980? Oh, yeah, we were still at school, you know, playing underage gigs. <laughs> um, and hanging around with the, the milkshakes we met. They were about five years older than us. Um, so... We started, we we kind of knew who they were from the pop rivets and we kind of looked up to them a bit and they started giving us the odd support gig and um, pub gigs that we managed to, I don't know how we managed to do it. I think my dad had a lot to do with it. He would charm his way into giving, getting us these gigs at quite established rock venues in the Medway town. So there were a few in those days. Yes. And we'd, be, we'd end up supporting local punk bands and that sort of thing at the age of 15, 16, 17, um, uh, doing our O-levels and then playing gigs the next night or the night of O-levels. <laughs> it's, it's, it's crazy really, but that's what we wanted to do. And, um, luckily my dad was, uh, you know, he helped us. He would drive us to these gigs and make sure we did them and get us home in time yes my god what a dude that is so yep. useful that's yeah. amazing so for those who might not know what is the medway scene because obviously this is this is it, it sounds like sort of i don't know um what's that place in san francisco the canyon i don't know oh, well, laurel canyon laurel it's, it's a yeah, bit it's... like is this is is this a slightly sort of another version of laurel canyon i think laurel canyon is slightly more glamorous and a lot warmer and you know <laughs> It's probably a lot more happens. Medway oh, is a, a it's a strange sort of place because it's not what we used to say. It's not close enough to London to actually make it easy to go to gigs, or it wasn't in those days. And it's not far enough away to tempt bands to come down and play it because London's quite close. So 
bands wouldn't really bother visiting us in Rochester and Chatham and Gillingham. You get the occasional bands coming through and playing at Central Hall in the 70s, as I mentioned earlier, but that had kind of mostly stopped by the time we were getting going. So there was kind of a demand for live music, particularly the, our contemporaries, you know, people of our age and a little bit older, and there were a few pubs that would put bands on. And, yes. and we were all quite like-minded in the t in the sort of music we liked, which was all music that had, uh, a lot of it's music from, you know, 10, 15 years before um, with punk rock mixed in from that, you know, so it was very do-it-yourself and influenced by, you know, the kinks and the pretty things and those sort of, those sort of bands that were kind of well-known a bit but yes. were a bit more underground than the Beatles and that sort of stuff. And we influenced each other. So a, there's probably a couple of dozen people of, you know, people within sort of seven or eight years of, of age who kind of have kind of glued themselves together with similar interests, but with different ways of expressing it in all these bands from, from Medway. So yes. starting from the Potrovitz and the Milkshakes and the Prisoners, then it would be the the dentists and the, the claim and the dagger men and then uh, and continuing continuing on from there to this day um i mean all those people those people bands that i've just mentioned are kind of still playing music in one form or another sometimes with the same band or you know a band that's very similar but with just slightly different people in it we've all done it we've all been in loads of bands and it's, yes. us it's usually with a a different combination of people that we've played with for the last 35 or 40 years <laughs> i suppose because yeah. we all know each other so well so we we can play very quickly um it's not to say we haven't all you know done bands with other people from outside the area and that's very good as well because that gives you a different way of looking at things but uh it's quite a unique setup isn't it this medway thing because i've done interviews with the dentists and the claim as well and possibly others but um the dentists obviously because they were quite a bit more indie but there, there's a there's definitely a, a there's a sort of a, an essence isn't there a spirit that sort of seems to bond you all together yeah i mean even though sometimes the music ends up being you know have different emphasis but it's there there is a thread um but i don't i it, it's difficult to put your finger on why um i mean all these people we all socialized together in a in a lot of cases as well so it wasn't just you know if you lived in london you could be a london band but never see each other apart from rehearsals and you know but all these you know we all live within a few miles of each other and or in some cases a few hundred yards from each other so we still are, we can all walk around Rochester or Chatham or Strude and you're more than likely to bump into someone that you've played in a band with or still playing a band with or socialise with, which is kind of odd when we're all getting on a bit now, but we all still love what we're doing. Yes. Um, we, don't, we don't take it as seriously as we used to because, you, you know, when you're young, you take everything really seriously. Now we're just doing it for the love of it. We did it for the love of it then as well, but there's always a, an agenda of trying to make it or trying to make it your living or as a passage to um, probably getting out of the Medway towns to make, you know, to make a living out of it. Um, but 
here we are. We'll all, most of us are still here. Yeah, well, absolutely. I guess with a lot of places, they do have that, you know, like, I don't know, Liverpool had Eric's, didn't they? And that seemed to have this catalyst of lots of creative people and a few very creative, you know, movers and shakers like Bill Drummond and people like that. Did, didn't the Medway scene have any, you know, main characters that sort of kind of gave people a little bit more confidence because they were just that bit more, I don't know, emotionally developed or had a bit more kind of just confidence in in themselves to um, sort of yeah well that with us it would have been uh the milkshakes and previously to that the Popovits. but as i said before that was billy childish and russ wilkins bruce brand um who kind of did the punk rock thing a bit before us and made diy albums because they didn't know any other way of doing it um no one could get signed and possibly no one wanted to be signed they just wanted to make their own albums and distribute them themselves so they did it they told us how to do it and then we told other bands how to do it and that diy thing just became a normal thing to do you formed the band wrote some songs did some gigs i would make an album whereas outside of this these towns i mean i mean i'm sure it happens all over the country but that's the way it happened here in a deep you know because we were nowhere near labels and, yeah. we, and we didn't, you know, going up to London is a pain in the ass. We had it all kind of had it all here. Um, so I suppose the DIY thing for us probably came directly from the milkshakes and it, we disseminated it a bit further and that's how it's kind of stayed. Yeah. Can you remember much about your first album? Had you written, rehearsed it all? Beautifully, a bit like, I don't know, Black Sabbath did on their first album, where it was all well, well, sort of, you know, just went into the studio. Oh, yeah, went... yeah, kind of. I mean, we'd, I think if you mentioned Black Sabbath uh, in those days, there were probably gigs in the Birmingham area five nights a week, I should think. They probably honed their craft a bit more than we did. But um, the prisoners had been, I suppose James started playing with us at the beginning of that year, and we were playing, I don't know, probably couple of times a week two or three times a week locally which is quite a lot considering it's not a big area but we had plenty of time to break those songs in so we probably had seven or eight months of playing those songs you know growing them getting used to playing them so when we eventually did decide to do an album they were you know that's what we normally played at a gig so in that respect it's probably quite similar to a lot of bands who had you know, lads, it's, you know, we'll pay for two days in the studio, except it was us who paid for the two days in the studio. Um, yes. So you just get it down as quickly as possible. Um, yeah. So it was, that's a, it is the best way of, of doing a demo, uh, your debut album. You just record your set. Yes, that's As live true. as possible, as long as it's been played in, you know, so you know which ones work. Even at the and age had of you, and had you been sort of aware of that kind of other scenes kind of in London? Like, is it Alice in Wonderland, that sort of particular club that had sort of a bit of a, a vibe? And... Oh, what, Doctor and the Medics Club. Yes. Uh, yeah, we did play there. Um, the Prisoners played there like two or three times in sort of 84, 85. And we played with the Doctor and the Medics um, a couple of times as well. They, they supported us, uh, us and the Milkshakes up somewhere in North London. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think we fitted that scene. 
kind of, well, the prisoners did anyway, because we were playing that sort of mid to late 60s sort of stuff with a bit of a psychedelic hard rock edge. Yes. Um, but that seemed to be independent of us. We st- We just kind of somehow found ourselves being asked to go and play f- for these little clubs that grew up doing sort of retro music, I suppose, retro rock and roll, but with a punk attitude. Um, there were a few scenes that came and went during the time we were going. Um, yeah, I'm, I mean, I don't know, maybe we helped inspire them to start or maybe we just, you know, it all comes up simultaneously, you know, like the, uh, the Paisley Underground and all that sort of stuff. You know, we had, we knew nothing about that, but it, you know, I think we got mentioned in the same sort of breath as that sort of thing. Uh, yes. It was just, it's just coincidental, I think. We were, we I always, think it was quite, a, there was quite a few bands from America, wasn't there? Yeah, LA, we were always a lot, sort of... we were always a lot rougher, you know, musically than those ones. They were always quite slick and jangly, but we were, you know, a bit, Dirty and nasty. <laughs> <laughs> did you play much else around apart from the sad? Did you go around the country much? We touring? did. Yeah, once. I suppose once we played London and um, got signed to Big Beat, it we gradually got asked to play further and further afield, and it was a very very hit and miss. Some some of the gigs were, you know, not that well attended. Most of them usually, but you yes. get the odd one. We'd get little. Um, pockets of fans in in strange places um as we you know if we went back a few times um you know we we did we did well in scotland you know um we didn't play that many times but we seemed every time we went there apart from maybe one time it was we usually did really well we, and northern ireland was good um you know and we we eventually kind of were playing quite regularly outside of the south and we didn't really like coming back to playing in, in Medway because you know, you know even though we were doing reasonably well I mean it, it was mainly London that was our stomping ground yes um you could and in those days you could actually play London kind of once a week really without affecting any of the other gigs these days if you're going to play a gig in London they say oh you know don't play anywhere two months before or, you know, a month afterwards and because we've got to sell the tickets and, no, you know, people won't come if they've seen you, you know, the week before. But in those days, it was just, yeah, we've got another gig. You know, we'd be, we'd be up there once or twice a week because there were just so so many venues to play. Yes, there were, there were a lot, actually, has, has, has been documented. Did you, I mean, when you went to sort of record the second album at that stage, I mean, obviously the 80s had started to get the sort of, quite a, a vibe, haven't they? We'd had the sort of the, I suppose, post-punk, then we had the bit of the goth scene, then sort of new romantics and the Blitz kids, and then indie pop was kind of getting quite sort of popular. Did Was there much of a discussion with the band of what to and how to sound on the second album? Um, well, the second one was we did it for Big Beat and they wanted to do it with the producer, uh, Phil Chevron. Who were late, late was in the Pogues. He'd be, he was in the radiators from space before that. Um, and he was a he was a really nice bloke and had a kind of knew what we were getting at. But there was that sort of thing about, well, you know, you've done your your, your rough homemade album, but you know, it's, now it's time to do something that's a little bit more 
a little bit more commercial or slick. And we weren't, we kind of went along with it, but we really weren't ready for that sort of thing. We were still part of the Medway gang. You know, we had the, you know, the milkshakes took us, us and our gear down to the recording studio in Eastbourne. You know, we were still relying on them for a kind of transport and, and stuff like that. And they took the piss out of us mercilessly for going to record in a big studio with a producer. And we weren't convinced by it either. We just, you know, we liked the way we did our first album, you know, live. Um, not kind of getting carried away with overdubs and fancy synthesizers and stuff. Um but that was, you know, we did it. We went along with it and didn't really like the results, to be honest. You know, that might have been because we were kind of worried that we'd moved a bit far away from our kind of uh, punky roots. Yes. Or maybe we were, we were kind of a bit, you know, not really ready to spread our, you know, wings and get out of our little bubble you know, DIY sort of garage bubble. Um, it's easy to try and rationalise it when you're much, much older, you know. But, you know, I think we were kind of enthusiastic about it until we discovered that kind of other people weren't so enthusiastic about, you know, we we, we did a tour of France and after that album had just come out, and people coming up to us at gigs were saying, "Oh, your your new album's too soft," you know, because we're live. We're you know quite hard hitting and loud and um just a, a different beast. Yes. That was on the record, and people told us about it because I think they thought you know we were their age and they can talk to us and tell us what they you know what they think about it. So. That sort of Paul Weller's kind of move into that soul world of, with the Style Council, had that sort of started to... We weren't make... interested in that. We really weren't interested in contemporary bands. Right. It's, you know, that period of music passed us by completely. We just kind of just were locked into what we wanted to do. We listened to the stuff that we wanted to listen to. We didn't like any new stuff, very little new stuff, or the stuff that we heard that was kind of similar to what we did always had a horrible 80s production um and it we just i don't know it, we the closest we got to that sort of thing was maybe coming across top of the pops every thursday and thinking it's all shit yes it's true so, i know the no, trevor horn production sound was quite harsh yeah. really yeah, I mean, some of it sounds better in retrospect, but we it just wasn't what we were interested in. We were interested in uh, rock and roll, really. Yes. Did you come across bands like The Action at that stage in the 80s? I was, yeah, we was aware of The Action because that compilation that came out that with the Paul Weller sleeve notes, wasn't it? About yes. 19, that was about 1980, yeah. So, yeah, we were, we were aware of bands like that and we were kind of very interested in bands that went under the radar because they had a sort of romance about them, you know, the fact that you could come across obscure singles or albums by these bands that you'd never heard of, but you'd buy them because they'd only be 50p in a charity shop, you know, or a flea market. And you'd say, wow, you know, uh, why didn't this lot become famous? But, you know, most of the time, it's only 15 years before 
15, 16 years. And it's like a, that was a, like another world. But now 15 years ago, like we were saying earlier is, well, nothing's changed. It's nothing. No, I know this is this is true. Yeah. Actually, you know that would have seemed even five years would have been or ten would have been yeah. you know like it would have been that kind of status quo look, wouldn't it? Lots of denim, long hair. It'd have felt like a very different period and yeah. um, d- different attitude. But yes, it's strange, isn't it? So with with your next album, this wasn't on Big Beat, was it? This was no, back we went on back to own... our own label. Yeah, we 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 kind of amicably kind of left Big Beat because they weren't kind of too happy with us going around slagging our own album off as soon as it came out, <laughs> which is, I don't know. There's, there's, there's better ways of, uh, we could have just, you know, moved on, but, um, we, we were actively like saying, well, we don't like this new album, <laughs> you know, career <laughs> sabotaging your own career as usual. But so we decided to make the next one on our own. Well, with Russ Wilkins, um, kind of helping us out. And as it turned out, we spent quite a lot of time on it, but it was time that we wanted to spend on it, you know, like spending hours to get actual proper phasing on it, you yeah. know, with, um, tape loops and um, very speed, multiple tape recorders for one phasing effect rather than using the phaser, you know, which was much easier. Just mucking about with sound effects and stuff like that. But at the, at the heart of it was still live tracks. Um, so the last four fathers was the album that we wanted it to be. You know, it's uh, the first and the third albums are the ones that are the prisoners. Yes, that's what we wanted to to sound like. And know. did you uh, did you go back to recording where you did in the first on the first album? Uh, no, it was the first album was at um, a studio in Hern Bay. But that would, I think they'd moved to another studio that we weren't so keen on. So we recorded it in Woolly Studios on the Isle of Sheppey, which is about the same sort of standard, just a, I don't know if it was eight track or 16 track, but it was very basic. You know, there was, wasn't racks and racks of effects. It was just a few microphones and a desk and some compressors and a reverb unit. Um, but it was, you know, the engineer was, you know, that bit older than us and you kind of knew the era that we liked. So he wasn't standing in our way saying that's not the correct way of recording things these days. He would kind of say, you know, okay, we only want two mics on the kit and that sort of thing, which was, you know, no one was wanted that. Everyone wanted multiple drums around the uh, kit, mics around the kit. Yes. Um. So, yeah, for the, it's an... It's got some idiosyncrasies that album sound wise. It's a, it, it's kind of odd sounding because, but that's just what we kind of wanted it to, to sound like. Um, so, but that's yeah, and, and, yeah, and it's a great. I have to say, I do also love the out, you know, the artwork and the and the cover. It's um, by then you're you're sort of got a great sort of look and image. Um. Yeah. Well, that's just us in an alley alleyway in. Rochester, somewhere, you know. Yes. Somewhere I still walk practically every other day. <laughs> nice. So when you come to do In From The Cold, is this on Stiff Records then? Uh, well, it it was uh, on Countdown, which is a a different label that was licensed to Stiff. That Countdown was run by Eddie Pillar. Right. Um, and it came out through Stiff. Um, 
unfortunately stiff went kind of under you know about a month after our album came out um which is bad luck not that we actually liked the album in the end is another one we made with a you know with a bigger budget and a producer and sort of went down a lot of blind alleys for us anyway yes was that with was troy, troy Tate? Tate. was he was yeah. he the the main engineer on that one it was the producer he was he was brought in to sort of keep it on budget by stiff but it went over budget anyway <laughs> it was in a quite you know quite an expensive studio trying to make us work with click tracks and you know that was just we'd never done anything like that and it really didn't work it took all the you know the balls out of the band trying to play with click tracks you know yes god i've I've, done, I've sort of interviewed a lot of bands or um drummers who almost basically had nervous breakdowns because of the producer sort of giving them such a gr- lot of grief on the click track yeah, and then it was it was it was kind of like that i mean i can nowadays i can see the you know i can see the logic in click tracks and you know and a lot of drummers can play perfect time without you know the use of a click track but it, it's it's something you have to kind of the experienced drummers can do it and not sound as if they're being held back they can it can sound natural but when you've you're young and you're all you're you're used to making a a racket at, at gigs speeding up and slowing down and playing drunk and all that sort of stuff it's to suddenly have to sort of rein it all in it didn't didn't suit us well we felt it didn't suit us um so it was another album that we made think well thinking that this is not really us you know that's yes. what we're thinking even while we're doing it and spending loads of money on hiring mellotrons and harpsichords and extra you know hammonds and leslies and guitars that we you know all that sort of you know fancy amplifiers that didn't get used it's all that sort of thinking oh this is a you know fun and exciting but you know it didn't actually was it a a miserable experience for the band at that stage i wouldn't say miserable it was kind of uh it didn't feel right um and a troy another really nice guy but again he didn't he'd never seen the band before he was asked to produce us he you know we went for a beer with him because he was recommended and he seemed all right liked the same music as us but we were kept asking him to you know can we do it a different way and he was like no no we've got to do it like this um it's got to be hi-fi it's got to be good quality um but eventually just as we started to mix it we did we played a gig and he came to the gig and saw us and realized he said i'll I'll get it now he suddenly kind of thought you're not you know this is the sort of band you are you know it's a completely different beast and he kind of was a bit chastened i think um and allowed us to bring russ wilkins up for for a couple of the last sessions who was a you know a mate who worked with us on the first our two albums yes. we've made at home so that kind of rescued a couple of tracks by russ saying okay let's record it all live you know minimal and um that's called more my health which is on that album um which is i think most people's favorite but it's got a real quite a different sound to all the other tracks it's much more basic and open 
and um, a, a bit more lo-fi, I think. Yes. Um, so, so did you, when that album came out, did you do any touring at that stage or was the band sort of almost over? Um, I, th- I think by the time it came out, we'd kind of not had enough. It was kind of grinding us down a bit for, you know, trying to be something else. We did a, the tour with the Ramones um, about, or just after we recorded it. It was uh, like a three-week tour. We played with the Ramones for, you know, three weeks. Um, but that was good. I mean, you know, we're playing in front of a completely different audience and generally going down really well. And then the agency said, right, let's go back to the places you've just played in smaller venues, you know, with the Ramones go back a couple months later and yeah. most of the gigs weren't that great and they weren't well promoted. And, you know, we've just been around the country twice and you're thinking we've been doing this for six years or four years properly. Mm. And we just made another album. We don't really like, <laughs> where do we go from here? We're kind of getting quite popular, especially in London. We were quite, very popular. We, we, we were selling places out, but and it was pretty good in Europe, but we were absolutely knackered. You know, the lifestyle of being in a band that doesn't earn any money, really. And, um, you know, three of the, but I was still living at home, but the other three were all living in, you know, not that nice places, really. <laughs> you know, with no, with no money and, you know, a very up and down income. Yes. There's a, there's a point where you think, do we carry on living like this or do we take it more seriously and try and make a living out of it and change what we do or do we stop? And I think somehow we, we sort of stopped without kind of thinking that thinking it through, right? We should have had six months off really. Um, but we ended up having the summer off and all quite light not playing. We all got sort of, God, this is nice. Not having to drive up and down the M1 three, four times a, uh, a week. Yes. And it became kind of normal. So we announced we were splitting up and fulfilled our remaining engagements. And I think while we were doing those last few gigs in London, we were thinking, hang on, why are we splitting up again? But you kind of set the ball rolling in some ways. Yes. Um, so I don't know. It just happened. You know, yeah. I, I think... And was Danny was Danny Fields part of the Ramones setup then, or had he moved on by then? Because I know he was part of the Ramones in the very early days. Danny Fields. I don't know Danny Fields. No, he was one of those managers who was around for the very beginning of the Ramones. I think he then got sort of sidelined, and then they became slightly different and a different management took over and what was the did the audience you know love such a different band to to the Ramones as a support oh we went down pretty well most of the time well I mean we did have a few fans so you know there would all be people always be people at the Ramones gigs who had come to see us which was really nice not loads but enough to sort of have a few down the front jumping about and who knew the words and things like that so and because it was we're kind of kind of high energy not in the same way as the Ramones but it wasn't uh we weren't a little pop band 
we it, we kind of I think we won a few people over, and it was you know there was only one I think it was Newcastle where we got gobbed at all night, um, but you know I think we expected that more than it actually did happen in the end. Yes. But uh, it's, it's always know. good to factor in one bad night. Then yeah. what happens when when you sort of all walk away from the band? Do you then did you sort of um, yes? What was your next chapter? Um. Well, it was the JTQ. Yes. Um, who became who became suddenly picked up by John Peel? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't think. Jo- I mean, James has said it himself since that he never wanted to split the band up. It was a complete kind of sh- shock for him. Um. So he kind of was. He he had a few months in Sweden with his girlfriend, kind of, you know kind of trying to work out what he wanted to do. But before he went, he just had this idea about recording an organ instrumental or a couple of organ instrumentals um, with a couple of other Midway musicians. It was going to be his brother, Dave, playing the guitar. Wolf, obviously, the drummer. It was basically some of the Dagger men. And I think whoever was going to play bass couldn't do it, so he asked me to do it. And we we rehearsed it once the night before, and then we went and recorded it, um, and then forgot about it. These two songs, um, and then he, I think, he must have given it to Eddie Pillar. Um, in the meantime, who decided to put it out under the name of the James Taylor Quartet, and it it was just an instant kind of radio hit, I suppose, with John Peel playing it all the time. So from nothing the JTQ just appeared by accident almost. Um, so it was half of the dagger men who was John, you know, um, Dave and Wolf and half the prisoners. Um, it, you know, that put, put together the lineup that actually recorded the single and we were off and we yes. obviously picked up a lot of the prisoners fan base because it wasn't that far, wasn't that long after. Um, so we were quite lucky. We didn't do, have to do loads of that, um, you know, traipsing around trying to build up a fan base again because it was the band in that early incarnation picked up a lot of the prisoners fan base. So was that first album, was that mission impossible? Uh, yeah, the mini album. Yeah. That had blow up and Goldfinger. Uh, well, blow up was the single. Um, it had Goldfinger and Alfie and a couple of self, you know, self-penned ones as well as the covers. I mean, the band kind of started off as a kind of a, a joke at first. It was, you know, we, it was going to be, oh yeah, we we can do gigs where we'd sit up playing the corner really quietly and people will ignore us <laughs> that while we're playing <laughs> le- lounge music. But you know, there weren't many gigs like that. In actual fact, they, they went from, you know from a standing start we played the first gig we ever played at the wag club was sold out um so was it the wag no it was the moon it was the limelight or the moonlight. right it was one of those hip and trendy places with famous people in the audience and it was that was our first gig and yes. it was sold out so it, it it went very quickly it was strange because there was that sort of there was the sort of real indie scene during the 80s and then that changed 
you know, with, I suppose, ecstasy and then dance music and there was shoegazing. But there was these kind of clubs that started to appear, didn't they? And they really liked this kind of interesting kind of instrumental sort of music kind of that we recognised or, or certainly felt familiar with, but it felt quite hip and groovy, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, it was kind of acid jazz, wasn't it? That's that's eventually what it became known as. Um, well, certainly when I was in the band, it, for most of the time, we just thought ourselves of a, as a punk rock version of Booker T and the MGs. That was the kind of uh, what the noise we made was. Um, after, you know, we'd be going a while and playing a lot of gigs, touring, it, it, it sort of evolved into gradually heading towards a more funk sort of sound, um, especially when James signed a contract with the um, subsidiary of Polydor that was kind of a, kind of a funky label. Oh uh, yes, was that urban? I think it might have been urban, or I can't remember now. But that was the oh. point where I started, you know, feeling a bit disconnected from it because I, I didn't really like the music that much by the end. Um, again, it was you know, we were put into a studio with a producer, Pete Wingfield, who wanted everything done to a click track again, you know, and again, Simon Wolf really struggled with it. Although he did get it in the end, but it was a real struggle. And I don't think that album, Wait a Minute, stands up to the other ones. You know, yes. it, it's kind of a it's a bit bland compared to the sort of stuff that we did DIY. But then that was that was the kind of the the end anyway, because you know, eventually that lineup kind of split and um James went on, you know, on his own and recruited proper session players, you know, people like Steve White and other people. It became a different thing completely. So um, by the end of 88, me and Wolf were at a loose end again. Yes, my God. So then what happens to you then? Because obviously, still, are you still living at home at this stage? No, I was out by then. No, I I kind of stayed at home during the prisoners because <laughs> I'd rather I'd rather be home and get meals and or get me washing done and all that sort of stuff. You know, the the independent lifestyle was all very well, but without money and that sort of thing, it's it's quite difficult. It's quite tough. I was quite comfortable at that point, but I did leave not long after. Yes. So then we, when, when we crept into the 90s, the John Major year, where I think years that things really change and suddenly Britpop appears. What's your sort of musical direction in that time? Uh, well, the next thing was the Prime Movers. Um, so me and Wolf were at a loose end, you know, a rhythm section. And we've wanted to carry on. We'd quite enjoyed playing together in the quartet. So basically we, um, we got Graham out of retirement, went around and knocked on his door and said, do you want to be, should we get a band together? And he, he, he was in full sort of, um, professional, you know, he was, a, he was in the fire brigade doing well in the fire brigade, but obviously, you know, there's obviously an itch to scratch somewhere. So we formed the prime movers. Right. Um, there you go. That's sin, yeah. sins of the forefathers. Yeah, that's it. And it was just the three of us on that first album again, you know, recorded really quickly uh, a batch of songs that took no time at all for Graham to write um and that's kind of 
a ba- you know, that was a very basic album, more basic than the pri- anything the Prisoners did, I think. Um, uh, so, but by the time we'd made that, we'd we'd got Faye in the band because um, obviously Graham and Faye were married, and Faye was an organ player and a singer, and she hadn't played for a while. So, um, by the time we started playing gigs, she was in the band. So, the sound went from the basic three piece back to a sort of a, a rocky Hammond guitar sort of thing bit bit heavier in the prisoners i'd say yes uh, kind of a, kind of a different thing but that sort of bled into the, uh, the beginnings of Britpop, i suppose yes dear old Britpop came along so yeah. you did three albums really quickly didn't you earth earth church and ark um up to sort of 93 at this stage was the band was that sort of 24 7 doing the band at this stage while i was doing a degree at the time um graham was in the fire brigade um and they also had two kids by the end of it as well um but it was quite full on yeah i mean being in the fire brigade graham could sort of wangle time off and change shifts and stuff like that and we did we did a lot of touring in the prime movers we did some really big tours around europe a lot of time in a knackered van, you know, um, kind of taken up with the prisoners left off, I suppose. A lot of, a lot of the places we went back to, there was always a lot of prisoners fans. Yes. Same, same with the quartet as well. So that there was a, you know, prisoners fans were getting the, getting the, the sort of, you know, the James Taylor organ sound with the quartet and they were getting the Graham guitar sound thing with the prime movers. So, you know, that's probably quite healthy for everyone. Yeah, uh, and but it became a it the music kind of became a bit kind of um, top heavy. I think it was it got a bit rock. I think I don't know how it went there, but um, it did. By the end, it was getting a bit almost hard rock, proggy sort of stuff, which I quite like hearing other people do. But I wasn't quite. <laughs> wasn't quite into doing it myself but i think again again by the end i think we were all just a bit shagged out after four years of touring and stuff like that yes and then did you what what was it the solar flares the next one or were you having other musical combos before um, then well no after after the prime movers kind of it was um good child for a little while um, which was an offshoot of a band covers band I was in called Johnny and the Bandits was was again me and Wolf but I played the guitar and Johnny Barker and Glenn Prangnell Glenn Prangnell is now groovy uncle um, was in the Craven A's um, uh, that was a sort of a co- covers party band but two of them wrote songs so we thought we'd try doing our own stuff in parallel with bit under a different name so we we made a couple of albums as good child um kind of during that brit pop sort of scene um i don't know well, i suppose we sounded a bit like some of those bands not deliberately but it kind of fitted in but it didn't really take off i don't think we we really believed in what we were doing we were kind of we missed the days of playing cover versions and everyone dancing at our gigs rather than uh staring at us yes but you know so. I, I quite like some of the stuff we did and um actually lee grimshaw is going to put out a 
uh, a single that we recorded that never never came out at the time. He's going to put it out on his Spin Out Nuggets label. Oh, fantastic! Year. Is that coming out this year? Yeah, yeah. Because we That'll did a couple be... of we did a couple of albums with Good Child and a cut and um a single. Um, yeah, and then so and we recorded another single in about '96 before we decided to, you know go back to doing covers so there was these two songs laying about that um that were pretty good um but yeah so by about 96 97 that had kind of puttered out put, yeah petered out and we'd gone back to playing cover versions <laughs> and which is quite good fun it has to be said yeah well absolutely and then was that the next one was that slow, solar the solar flares that yeah, came so it was the solar flares after that which was again me and wolf again and getting Graham back out again so you know the solar flares and the prime movers started the same you know same three people um but the solar flares i think we consciously decided to do what we you know what we're good at no pretending to be a rock band or anything like that so it was kind of closer to the prisoners i suppose but a more garagey version of the prisoners um and that lasted for a couple of years as a three-piece which was really good it's being a three-piece is so easy it's, yes you have to you have to work a bit harder on stage but it's so it's so easy to get on when there's only three of you um it's a classic lineup. Yeah, it's a it's a classic number, it. isn't it? Yeah, um, keeps but it. Eventually, we did. You know, musically, you think oh, I just wish there was something else going on. You know, a bit more music. So that's when we got parsley in and started carrying started carrying a Hammond and a Leslie around yet again um, to sort of expand the sound of the band. But it really worked. You know, he's he's a different keyboard player to. James or Faye, it will try and fit in and do minimal stuff to sort of complement what's already there. Um, so was that the album you did with uh, Big Beat Records? Look what I made out of my mind. We made two of them. Yeah, look, look what I made out of my head and one called Laughing Sons as well, which came out not long before we finished. You know, so the Solar Flares was another band that had four years, I suppose. Um, yes. But my God, you did bring out an album a year, which is very prolific. Uh, yeah, I suppose there was also a Can Satisfy You, which was like a you know an official bootleg of live versions and covers and re-recordings and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it was kind of a DIY thing, um, but we signed to Big Beat because they 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 were very interested in it because you know they had the prisoners stuff and. But the, the the thing with the solar flares was well, we were around at kind of the wrong time. It was just before the internet got really going, so we were still in that phase of struggling to find people who were interested in us. Even there's a lot of, you know, having been away for a few years, there were a lot yes. of people who wanted to see us as musicians. But actually getting the word out um, was quite difficult. Um, but we did do a few tours and. And it was the early days of Ryanair, so we could go off and play one of you know one-off gigs in Europe. I know cheap air, cheap flights. Yeah. Was there any particular country? Because I often find with bands, there's there's one place that really loves them, and they never know why. But they go, yeah, we're really big in Italy, or we're really big. Uh, in... Yeah, I think we 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 did all right in all the 
places in Europe, it was just a bit more difficult to go for for long periods because of work. Yes. Um, so we had to judge it a bit more. So we couldn't go away for three weeks like we used to. It used to be like short, sharp tours, which in some ways is is better because you don't get so knackered. But I, you know, I quite like the long tours. Yes. Um, did Did you ever go to America at all for anything? The only time I played in America was with the, with the stabilizers. Right. But not God. not in any of the bands that I'm. You know, if I'm known for anything, it's probably you know the bands with Graham. Um, so. No, me and Graham haven't played together as a band in America. Which is no. A, it's a shame. God, that is a shame. They would love you, wouldn't they, in there? So then was 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 your next band, was this the one that you're still with to this day, who's kind of commitment for life? Um, so I think the Solar Flares ended in 2004. No, after that was the Stabilizers. I played guitar in, in a sort of a punk pop band called the Stabilizers. Um, who were friends, not a Medway band at all. They were friends. There were people who were in a band with my wife a few years before. So they were friends. Um, and we got signed to Little Stevens um, Wicked Cool Records in America. You know, completely unexpected. Yes. We made a, our own, we made an album for an Italian label who didn't sell any copies at all because I think he'd like to band, but didn't know how to sell sell records or cds um but that somehow found and then we made an album for acid jazz i persuaded um eddie pillar that he might like it i mean i'm not sure how it fitted in with acid jazz because it's all sort of two minute punk songs (laughs) poppies punk songs but it found its way to little steven somehow and they they said we want to they want to sign us and it was the time when then price three were also signed to little steven's label so somehow we found ourselves signed to an american record label um with you know someone very famous running it and um they bought all their material and put out a sort of a compilation album of everything we'd recorded up to that point he picked all the songs and put it out over there um and we played a couple of gigs over in new york Blimey, that's fantastic. So you did two albums, The Last Chance Saloon, and what do you do? I do, do want to do the Wild Plastic Brain Love thing, which yeah. there were two versions of that album. The one, one of them was our album that was on Acid Jazz. And then there, they, the, there's also the compilation with the same title, which was a collection of songs chosen by Little Stephen of all the stuff that he'd heard by us. So, so it's a different album. Um, so yeah, that was quite, you know, quite exciting. And that was also during about the time I kind of started trying to write songs, although it wasn't my band to write, you know, it was the bass player, John, who wrote most of the songs, but I kind of worked out that I could do it too. Um, and I started doing demos at home, you know, stockpiling a load of demos and some of them. The stabilizers played most of them they didn't um so when eventually the stabilizers i kind of uh came to a juddering halt in about 2009 um i had a load of songs already ready for doing my own band 
So I thought it's about time before I'm too old to, to give it a go. Yes, absolutely. And this is Are We Having Fun Yet? Yeah, that's the Galileo 7. Um, so, yeah, my wife got my wife in to play keyboards, even though she's a bass player. <laughs> um, old mate, Russ Baxter, I used to play with in phase. We, we forgot phase, actually. That was just after the uh, Solar Flares, which with Faye. Um, right. They made two albums as well. Forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and another a bass player called Paul Moss, who's just a, you know, a local bass player who plays with, you know, just one of those people who plays with loads of bands. Um, professional bass player. And basically they learned all my demos kind of note for note and we recorded them. I mean, there's, you can hardly tell the difference really between the demos and, and the, the band versions, apart from the demos have got me playing drums very badly on them and the, you know, the, the band versions have got a proper drum on. Yes. And that's what I've been doing ever since. ever since. But on phase, you did a record with on fame, the famous vinyl Japan, didn't, didn't you? Which was kind yes. of, their, yeah. So Who did we they think be, you are? Yeah, that's the one. So how did you manage to get them to sort of sign sign you for a letter for one one record? I really don't know to be honest. It's like these things kind of they happen, and then you kind of forget how they happened because they don't last very long, and things move on. Um, but yeah, Final Japan put that album out. I I really don't know how it happened, but they did. <laughs> That's fantastic. So yes. This new the band now. This is your. This is the one which has gone right up till the current day. Actually, so so when when that started, and you learnt your songwriting skills. Did you feel like this was uh, you turned a, a corner and thought this is it? I'm going to stick with this one. Um, no, it was more a case of I've got to do this while I still while I've still got a chance because you know there's a certain point when. If you don't do something, the time, the moment will pass. And I just happened to have a load of songs recorded. I said, well, if I've written them, I might as well play them. So I just put a band together and I liked doing it. Uh, I've never felt comfortable doing it because I'm a bass player, but I can play, I can play the guitar okay and sing kind of okay. So everything we do is a, a challenge. You know, it's never become le it's never been less than a challenge to do that. Mm. Uh, and while that's got its frustrations, where I think I can't quite do what I want to, singing wise or playing the guitar wise, or if I was doing them separately, I like that kind of sense of being pushed. And I'm still being pushed now, um, fourteen years later. So we don't play that often, not as often as I'd like, anyway. I love writing songs. I love the, the recording side of it. And I like playing when we get a chance to play, especially since we've got the, the lineup that we've had for the last six or seven years with Mole on the drums. Um, I think we're a, a good, well, I think we're a really good band live, but we very rarely get the chance to actually play. There's Mole's in about eight bands. <laughs> right. Um, and the chances, you know, as you get older, the, the, it all gets more genre based. People want to know what they're going to see these days. You know, it's the gigs you get are usually 
a weekend of garage rock and roll or a weekend of 60s psych or mod or whatever. And people uh, who've been going to see bands of our sort for years, they want to know what they're going to get. So it's very difficult to get just random gigs in pubs and clubs and get anyone to go. Right. Because you've got to play to people who know you who you are. When you get to our age, <laughs> you're not going to be, yes, you're not going to be att attracting 20-year-olds. This is true. This unless, is, out this... of a, unless out of a sort of, a, you know, people going to check out these old geezers that are still playing, maybe. I mean, there are a few of them like that, but... Um... It's different, oh, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. People, people want to have a bit more guarantee. So how did you manage to get Mole to be part of the band? Um, well, he started off playing the bass when Paul had to leave for a while because he was too busy. So he, Mole came in on bass because he he's a great bass player as well. And he plays with the Embrooks. That was his band back then. Um, and we recorded an album at the studio that him and Marty Radcliffe had at State, State Records. Um, and he happened to be around when we needed a bass player and he said, I'll do it. And then he was a bass player for a couple of years. Then Russ had to, cause he drums for the secret affair and he was just playing with them all the time. And we had a new album out, the third one, and I wanted to play a few gigs. So we, we got pulled back, mole shifted to the drums and it was kind of, it became a different band from that point. It was, uh. And that's, I mean, I'm very happy with it like that. I mean, I like all, everything we've done, but, you know, I like the stuff we've done with this lineup the best. Yes, my God. Because, so you're, you've done a lot of albums here, haven't you? Because I've been playing them so over the last couple of days, over like a week. So, yes, yeah, so that, that one that Mole was in, was this False Memory Lane? Was that his first, the first one that you did with him? That's what he played bass on that. And then the next one, um, so which you did on... Are We Having Fun Yet, which is... And Staring at the Sound were the, the first line-up. Then it's Mole came in on bass for False Memory Lane. Then he shifted to drums for everything since. Right, so there you go. Yes. God, it's been an incredible journey, hasn't it, really? So when yeah, you I, don't know, I don't know where we've gone on that journey, but... <laughs> But it's a it's an incredibly prolific band you've got now, and a lineup, and you, you know, because kind of listening to the sound, there's a lot of energy there. Yeah, not yeah, not bad for a bunch of old, old old folk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Maui's a very energetic drummer, and he's also like eight or nine years younger than the rest of us, so that's that gives him an advantage. You know, um, I wouldn't say we're prolific. I mean, it's it's it takes couple of years between i'm not like glenn and makes an album a year at least an album a year and the one we, that's coming out next in march will have taken it will be the last all original album was the middle of 2019 which was uh there is only now um in the since then we've done that covers album which was like a you know there's covers it was to celebrate our 10th anniversary. And then we did a lockdown album of re-recordings because we couldn't get together. So we kind of, you know, we'd always had this thing about, oh, we could have done the second album better, you know. So we recorded a few of them again and put that out as listening to the colours on um, Spin Out Nuggets. Yes. But it wasn't new material. It was just something we fancied doing to pass the time of lockdown. Uh, and then me and Viv would did 
sounds incarcerated that covers projects we did while everyone was in lockdown as well two albums of covers just me and viv yeah which kind of kept us sane at the time but in the meantime there's the, been the galileo 7 album that we started years ago been waiting to be finished for all that time and we finally managed to finish it last summer right and this is coming out in march 2024 yes yeah what's um, the title of the album you me and reality blimey so was this recorded before lockdown or during lockdown uh it was kind of started during lockdown um at the beginning of 2020 we did we recorded one of the new songs remotely kind of did a demo and then everyone put their own parts replaced my parts with their parts um and then gradually i got a stockpile of songs that we recorded as soon as we were kind of all in a fit state to actually get back together and we were allowed to get back together we started recording it did part of it at gizzard studios and then part of it as we normally do recording it backing tracks at Mole's studio onto analog eight track and then right putting, then putting them onto computer and then overdubbing on top of the, the live backing tracks my god did that did that album help you stay sane uh, sane during that um couple of years well not so much this one because most of the the actual finishing work was done afterwards but the the two sounds incarcerated albums that me and viv made are the ones that really kept us sane Yes, I couldn't. The covers it's... albums that we did for the, you know, the, it was a theme tonight that went online. It was started before lockdown. You know, it was people would just go down with their acoustic guitars and play covers on, on a theme. But it went online and it became, quickly became, everyone started recording things properly and doing videos. And so I was, I was spending as much time making those cover versions from Sounds Incarcerated as, as I was on my proper proper band stuff and the two albums that we made are some of the favorite stuff i've done because it's it's you know a lot of things happened during those two years and it did keep us on an even keel having something to concentrate on well absolutely there's a great there's a great kind of set list on on sounds incarcerated actually i love what what do i get which is just fantastic track just one yeah that was favorite. one of the first ones i did i i i, I Kind of prefer the, the the kind of more ambitious ones that we took on, like the Pulpus song and um, the Bee Gees song and a, a John Denver song and stuff like that. We never would have done anything like that without having the the time, been forced to spend time at home, and that's all you got to do. So, yeah, I learnt learnt a lot about recording and about what you can do. Oh right, so that was Sunshine on My Shoulders was your yeah. John Denver number. That's right, yeah. Right. Yes. God, there you go. Did that, um, did you sort of reject many ideas or did you sort of just sort of think it was a good idea to sort of experiment and well, challenge the, yourself? Um, Kevin, the guy who, who, who ran the team, he, he would think of the theme. So you had to think of songs that fitted the theme, whether it was parts of the body or, you know, um family members or dates or years or whatever so you could you could be really obvious or you could try and dig in and do something not obvious and stretch it you know a bit and making the videos was really good fun as well you know on a budget but you know using a pretend green screen and all that 
that sort of stuff. It was a it was a, a great way of distracting from some shit things that were going on at the time. Yes, God, it was horrendous. And you do one of my favourite Julian Cope songs on your second next album, The Greatest and Perfection of Love, which is just yeah, a classic. That was, yeah, that's that was Viv's idea. Yeah. yeah, a lot of the a lot all the ones that she sang were her idea. Right there, you go. There you go. Though I do love Living in the Past by Jethro Tull, but yeah, that's my, yeah, yeah, my, that's my, my prog, my love of prog rock, actually, yeah. which is good. So with the new album coming out, do you then have some dates for the summer that you're going to promote it with? Um, well, we've got a launch gig on March 15th at The Forge in Camden. and we're, uh, That's with The Claim as well. Um, so we're taking a chance and doing a, a London launch gig. Um, who knows? whether it'll what it'll be like <laughs> but it will be properly promoted i know that because agmp are doing it adrian gibson's doing it he's the also right. he's also the guy that's putting up putting on the the prisoners gig at the the roundhouse and he is a a fan so um we're hoping to you know it should be different from our normal gigs fantastic so, so when's the prisoners get uh, the prisoner gig that's may the 24th right at the roundhouse that's does that take much to uh, rehearse the band to to put something on, or do you know the material so well? Well, we've got a lot of new material to do, obviously, with a new album coming out. Yes, which is um, and what's that been like, sort of, with getting the members and working with Graham again? Well, I've I've been working with Graham for eight. We don't forget we did Graham down the forefathers for nearly ten years. <laughs> <laughs> yes, which, which was a uh, you know the Graham Day songbook, including the prisoners. Um, so it's not like I haven't played that. Me and him haven't played those songs. Um, you know, we've played them a lot of them quite a lot, which was kind of the reason we wanted to do. If we're going to get back together, we'd rather do some new ones. And it's took on a life of its own because um, James has been really enthusiastic about pushing it forward, and Johnny's, you know, learned how to play the drums again. Um, and it's kind of been. It's almost like being back in 1984 or something like that in some ways. You know, apart from when you look at each other, then you, then you realise we're not we're not twenty one anymore. But yes, um, it's been good because the energy is still there, and that, that sort of creative friction is still there that sort of produces good songs. You know, although this time we've been more um, careful about making sure that we all contribute because I never used to write songs in the prisoners, but now I do. So I've been able to contribute a couple of songs. James has written four or five grams written the other ones and we've all pitched in with arrangements and suggestions and you know ripping them apart and putting them back together so we've all really contributed um kind of more in that sense than we used to because mostly it was graham that used to write most of the songs so um yeah it's you been it's, it's different but it's still the prisoners Blimey, the twenty, the twenty fourth of May, twenty twenty four, with Steve Lamac on DJ. Yes, and very special guests to be announced. I could imagine. There you go. Oh, that's going to be very exciting. So you said there's a new album with the Prisoner as well. Yes, that'll be coming coming out on our own label. Um, just probably, hopefully, just before the gig, maybe at the beginning of May. Um, it depends on manufacturing times, but that's just got, that's, we're just about there. We've just got finished the artwork. It's been mixed and mastered. Um, we recorded it at one day at Abbey Road, we live backing tracks at Abbey Road. And then we, another 
day in another studio um, a couple of months later to finish it all off. So it's been done quite quickly. Yes. My God, that's... Um... Did it feel quite emotional doing doing this sort of material for the prisoner prisoners? Um, well, yeah, I suppose so. In some ways, it's a, it's strange. But I mean, it's not. I mean, I've I've worked with Graham on and off for you know, forty years. It's, forty I mean, years, but I, know. but I haven't. Um, you know, I haven't played with James properly for a long time, uh, or, or Johnny. You know, because he's not even been drumming all that time. Um, but yeah, he, he kind of immediately we started playing it's just like oh yeah this is what it sounds like it's immediate because it it came out of a, an impromptu jam session at someone else's gig where we all, all happened to be there so, yes you know we didn't know it was going to happen and suddenly we're all standing on the stage saying oh um should we play something so it's got that it had that spontaneity about how it came about it wasn't so, so someone said if someone's offered us a load of money to play a gig shall we do it it was more a case of Oh, we quite enjoyed that 10 minutes on stage. Shall we do it again? And then realizing that it happens to be the 40th anniversary of the first album coming out, you know, in 2022. So that was why we did that because we enjoyed playing together without yes. any kind of pressure. Of course, we've put the pressure back on ourselves now by doing, you know, a new album and a big gig. But, you know, we <laughs> at the same time, you think, well, you might not get a chance to do anything like this again. You got to take these, take these opportunities and enjoy them while they're there, while you still you got the energy. Absolutely, you're not going to really regret that. You might regret going a lot of things, going to too many meetings or bits and pieces, too many admin moments, but mm. um, but not not playing a gig, even whatever happens. The fans are going to be. Do you know if people are coming from all over the world to come to see the band? Well, they came from all over the world to see us at those gigs in Rochester we did at Christmas 2022. You know, we did four gigs uh, in a local venue that only held 300 people. Now, they all sold out pretty much. Well, the first three sold out within minutes. Um, and people f flew over from America, Australia, um, all over Europe. Um, and judging by the amount of tickets have been sold for the Roundhouse, quite quickly uh it seems like they must a lot of people must be coming again because obviously this one's much more heavily advertised than the local gigs we did because we literally only did that you know through a couple of facebook posts yes on the prisoners page so we didn't need to do any work at all but with a place like the roundhouse you've obviously got to work to sell as many tickets as possible but it's do it's doing pretty well you know? fantastic this is all good. My God, you're going to have a very busy year, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, and I also, I'm also doing an album with Ian Button as well. Um, open up Cambridge. Uh, he's in, he was in Death in Vegas and the Thrashing Doves and lots of other bands. He's a songwriter and producer and musician. I'm doing an album with, as a side project as well it, what's this what's this project called it hasn't got a name at the moment we're, we're hopefully going to come up with it's coming down tomorrow we're going to finish off some recording tomorrow so we hopefully think of a name for it it's just it's just me and him basically and viv's done some vocals on it as well but you know he plays drums and guitar and keyboards i play bass guitar and keyboards and we both sing and we both write songs and 
he's finished off some songs that I had lying about for years. I've finished off some songs he had, and we've written some ones kind of uh, in the meantime together as well, or remotely, even though we've only actually met twice properly to talk about it. It's all been done over, you know, over the internet. Yes. My God. How did you meet each other? Um, Well, he was aware of us, the Galileo 7, and he knew of the prisoners, obviously, because he supported us once but i really good liked his band the uh look up paper nut cambridge yeah very prolific band it's mainly him and a few other people uh a collective it's kind of psychedelic pop with a glam rock sort of tinge and a bit of bit of indie yeah but that's that he puts out on his own label yeah i can see you found it have you i have found i have found their pancake page (laughs) So sweet. Yeah, so this is the man from Death in Vegas, Thrashing Doves, and much more. Blimey. Oh, he's also produced Go, um, Old Lawrence from Go-Kart, Mozart, and uh, yeah, Felt. He's, he's played with lots of people. He's played with Reckless Eric, and he's he's in uh, Swansea Sound. Uh, oh, with Amelia Fletcher. Yeah, and, um, yeah that's, it's a small world, isn't it? So there you go. It's a small indie world, isn't it? We're yeah. all Everyone's doing their projects while they can. The Swansea Sound, yes, with Hugh from the yeah, the Poo Sticks. Yeah. God, that's fantastic. And Heavenly as well. Oh, so he's in Heavenly going to America this year for a few dates. Yeah, that's the one. God, he must be very excited, yeah. actually. Ah, oh, blimey. He's got indie credibility all over. Yeah, well, there's a, there's another interview for you. Do a bit of research. There you go. Yes. Well, I've done, I've had Amelia a few times, so there you go. She's kind of an indie goddess, really, isn't she? Yeah, <laughs> I, I wouldn't. I didn't. I've never heard of her before then, but you know, I'm sure she is. I know. Well, you know, I suppose you you shouldn't say the word. You know, that kind of slightly jingly jangly indie sound, but you know, it's a million miles away from the prisoner. But you know, just I just love the fact that people create so much stuff nowadays, and they're just kind of happy to do a project and get on with it and finish yeah. it and do the next project and get on with it and finish it. And, yeah, I think it's great. So there you go. Oh, God, he must be very excited with this project that he's doing with you. Yeah, so I what... mean, he, he, I think he's, he does loads of projects with different people. I think, you know, this is probably a, a, another one that he's, you know, taken on and thrown himself into it. And once that's done, he'll be off, you know, into something else. But um, I've been excited about it because I've not really worked with anyone like this, you know, finishing off my songs or me saying, I've got some lyrics can you put a tune to it? Or saying, I've got a tune. Can you put some lyrics? You know, it's that sort of thing. It's been really, um, I don't know how some people are so prolific and can churn something out so quickly. It takes me ages to write songs. Right. That's, you know, I think it's probably um, because I started relatively late, you know, so it's more of a grind getting a song out where other people I know can just knock them out really quickly. Well, it seems that they can anyway. Yes, in theory. Do you use different techniques for your songwriting? Uh, well, yeah, it just depends. You know, sometimes it's on guitar, sometimes what I'm noodling on a, the keyboard, or, you know, or sometimes you get a, a line, you know, not a nice, nice lyric line or an idea, and it can go, it can go, Sometimes I can sit down and try and say I'm going to write a song. Sometimes I will, sometimes I won't. But a lot of the time they just they just magically appear, and you have to, you have to grab it. 
somehow. I used to grab an element of it, which might yes. only be a, a chord sequence, but then, well, well, I've got that chord sequence. That would just spend a few days or weeks locked in the brain and until you eventually think, I can do something with that. So it's it's not something that is the same all the time. No. That's interesting, isn't it? No, I just always find it fascinating when you watch documentaries on people. I don't know. I was watching one with the Stones doing Exile on Main Street the other night and then seeing people like Bowie as well doing their yeah. kind of ways of writing, you know, creating material. It's kind of, it's just, you know, it's just a magical thing, isn't it, really, yeah. writing that, that Most moment. of it is done right here. This, yes. is, this is also where I record everything. So, um, you know. Sorry, I'm, I might be getting uh, a message called to go upstairs soon. Yes, okay, look, just last question then. I mean, if you could have whispered something to your 16-year-old self, is there anything in particular you would have gone, oh, that would have been a good idea? Yeah, hang on a sec. <laughs> My wife's yes. texting me from upstairs. Yes, put the kettle on. Could you make a drink? Hot water bottle. Yeah. Yes, it's going to free. Um, no, I think she wants to have a glass of port. Actually, we've got some vintage port. Mm, nice from Christmas. Yeah. Um, uh, sorry, what was that? What yeah. You so, just if you could have whispered something to your sixteen-year-old self starting out, is it from all these decades of experience and you know? Oh things yeah, you'd... I'd say I would say from what I know now, I'd say start writing songs quicker. Just give get it, there. Give it a go because it took me ages. Yes. And now I wish I'd done it a lot earlier. Yeah. There you I, go. I like I, I like the stuff. Generally, I've liked the stuff I've written, which is kind of, you know, you can't can't ask for more than that. 